This episode was recorded during the 2023 SAG-AFTRA strike. Without the labor of writers and actors, this film wouldn't exist. We stand in solidarity with those striking. Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And we are here with you on Indigenous Peoples Day. And as promised, we are covering a film that centers Indigenous peoples, both in the production aspect and in the storytelling and the acting. So today we're going to be talking about Blood Quantum, which came out in 2019, though most people know it as a pandemic release because that's when it dropped on Shudder. Oh, interesting. I thought I watched it during the pandemic. Yeah. Which is funny that this, like, what is that called? Narrowly jumped the gun on, (laughs) so to speak, on the pandemic thing. That it's a movie about the end of the world that immediately, like, was finished right before the start of the pandemic. Yeah. Just kind of funny. Yeah. I noticed as I was doing a little research that a lot of people were saying it was a 2020 release. And that's when most people saw it is when it came out on Shudder. I think it was part of that sort of group of media that landed, you know, right amid that time of lockdown when people were really looking for something new and interesting to watch. There were a lot of shows like that across various streaming services, shows and movies that people were able to kind of get really excited about or got maybe more attention than they would have, you know, if they had gone through a more traditional release structure because people were really seeking out stuff to be able to consume at home. And I think it worked to this movie's advantage. Yeah, definitely. Honestly, the rise of Shudder was kind of, it happened really in 2018 with the release of Joe Bob. But I mean, streaming services in general became huge during the pandemic, because exactly like you said, what else were we going to watch? Yeah, the horror community around Shudder really found its footing, in my opinion, in 2020. That was when we were really I mean, we had talked about it, my partner and I. I think we got Shutter right before the pandemic, like in early 2020, because we already knew that a proper season of The Last Drive-In was coming out, you know, uh, beyond the marathons. And so we're like, all right, we'll we'll pay the money for this. And it ended up being such a lifeline. Um, mm-hmm. And especially with that season of The Last Drive-In, like really bringing people together in an appointment-style viewing situation. Like, I think that really elevated Shudder or made a lot of people who were kind of on the fence about it pay more attention to Shudder and their various offerings. Well, and Shudder was also one of the few streaming services that was small enough, being a subsidiary of AMC, it was small enough that it was able to invest money in film and television shows that otherwise probably wouldn't have been made. Right. I'm not sure how much exactly of the budget of this particular movie was influenced by Shudder, but I know that Jeff Barnaby's prior project, Jeff Barnaby being the writer, director, and editor of this film, his prior project only had a budget of one and a half million. So I don't know if the Shutter budget was half or 75% or what have you, 
but the production value of this movie is very, very good. Yeah. And I would have to imagine that this being a Shutter original and getting the rights to it right off the bat probably helped it quite a bit. Oh, yeah. I guess that it took them something like 13 years to raise the money to make this film. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like the idea had been around for quite a long time with scripts in the works and things like that. But to actually make this the way that the director wanted to make it, it took about 13 years to raise the financing to be able to put it into production. So I'm sure having a Shutter deal uh, that helped it on the other side of that. So Blood Quantum is, um, just to give you a brief summary if you haven't seen it, it is a movie centering on a zombie apocalypse that happens in East Coast Canada slash United States. The area that this group of Indigenous people live in is generally East Coast Canada and then all the way into like Maine and Massachusetts. And I'm sure that if we looked up a map, we could probably find where exactly this is supposed to be set in. But I know that the director is Canadian. So Mm -hmm. I assumed that it was Canadian. And then also we have like the Quebec police that are featured in there. So it has to be Canadian or at least on the border. Yeah, it was shot primarily on two reservations that are in the Quebec province. Okay. With some other shots, some of the externals and city shots being in other parts of Canada. But primarily, it was uh, Quebec. Okay. So this centers around a fictional reservation that Jeff Barnaby actually uses in all of his projects called the Red Crow Reservation. So the kind of twist of this movie is not just that there's a zombie apocalypse. It's also that indigenous people who live in this area, while not immune to dying from the zombies, are immune to the bites. They don't become zombies themselves, while all of the white folks do. So kind of halfway through the movie, we get this swap where the zombie apocalypse happens. And then these people from the Red Crow Reservation are now the ones that have to kind of caretake this entire area. And in the movie, kind of the stars of the film, we have Michael Grayeyes, who plays Trailer, and his wife, her name is Ella Maya Tailfeathers, and she plays a character called Joss. And then we have their two sons, or sorry, their son, uh, Joseph, played by Forrest Goodluck, and then Trailer's son, through a previous relationship, named Lysol, played by Kiowa Gordon. And then we also have Olivia Scriven, who plays Charlie. That's kind of our main band of characters. A really, really, really big indigenous presence in this film, which we love to see, especially because the director of this film, Jeff Barnaby, is also Native American and grew up actually in the place that this is set. Even though this is a fictitious reservation, it's sort of in the same similar situation to what he grew up in. So really cool. And his experiences as a young person growing up on a reservation influenced this film a lot. There are a couple of really good articles about this film. One in particular, an interview he did with The Guardian that we'll link in the show notes, where he tells the story. This was in 2020 as the movie was starting to gain popularity. He talks about growing up as a Listoguch person in Canada and witnessing the Canadian government's treatment of First Nations peoples, including some raids that happened to his community, his Indigenous community. And he talks about this filmmaker who captured one of the raids on film and then made it into a documentary and how that was very important in his sort of coming up 
he was able to see an indigenous filmmaker and sort of see the power of witnessing and telling her story through film. At the same time, he was watching a lot of horror films and he tells a story of getting Night of the Living Dead on beta and that being a very seminal experience as well. You know, experiencing George Romero and the way that he tells stories that are infused with horror and scary things and yet consciousness about identity and the way that people interact. And so those are sort of the elements that are coming together for Jeff Barnaby as a filmmaker. And and I'll talk a little more about some of his other comments about this film as we get further in, because he says some things that I think are really important to remember about not taking a singular film or a singular director from any group of people as being wholly representative sure. of those people, especially when you're talking about a work of fiction. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. And this one is really exciting for me because, number one, it's an Indigenous film made by Indigenous people for Indigenous people. And number two, it's a horror movie. Yep. So from historically a group of people that you don't see a lot of film being made by or for, and to have it be a horror movie, of course, I was like, well, I must see this. And also, I think we should remember that what the meaning of blood quantum is. Mm -hmm. So blood quantum is a concept that was created a long time ago. I didn't do any research. So this is all going to be off the top of my head. But it's the idea that a certain percentage of your blood is indigenous. And therefore, you either can or cannot claim indigenous rights or live on a reservation with that type of people. But it's kind of a made up thing. Because I mean, prior to us having genetic testing or anything like that, that wasn't a thing. We were able to, you know, you can say, okay, well, this person in my ancestry is Native American, so I can go based off of that. But it's all really just a way to like be racist, <laughs> to, yeah, to yeah. include or exclude based off of the quality of your blood. Yeah. And I think it's important to say that the blood quantum laws were created by predominantly white governments to oppress indigenous peoples and then have been turned around and used by, <laughs> in most cases, air quotes, well-meaning white folks who have been told a story about their heritage that may or may not be true to try to uh, appropriate, you know, whether intent, whether consciously or unconsciously appropriate indigenous uh, identities, either for monetary gain or just for that kind of weird appropriative thing that white folks do to try to rather than learn our own stories tie ourselves to somebody else's story mm -hmm. because it seems cool or interesting or exotic so it's like highly problematic and i know different groups throughout the united states and canada have responded to blood quantum laws by treating tribal membership in many different ways and and really trying to both protect but call in you know people for whom this is a true part of their identity and it's complicated and it's not easy and different groups treat it differently i mean it was originally designed as racial segregation it, it was right. to determine a group of people to be or not to be this part of this group yes and it was murky then i mean saying somebody that has a blood quantum of one half just because they have a you know, indigenous parent is number one murky in general, because we can't know the history of somebody's genetic code 
in the 1800s. Just we just couldn't do it. Yeah. But in this case, it's kind of a way to reverse the idea of blood quantum as being you are now in this racially excluded group of Native American people based off of your blood quantum and saying now you are the one that has power in this situation because you are going to be immune to this zombie apocalypse. Not immune to dying, just immune to being infected. Yeah. Knowing what blood quantum is. As soon as I saw the title, I was like, okay, this is going to be interesting. Yeah. And all I knew was that it was a zombie film. But having that kind of turnabout in, I would say probably between a third and a half of the way through the movie was very interesting to kind of change the power dynamic. Because in the beginning of this movie, we have kind of a a display of everyday life for trailer. He's in this tribal police department or sheriff's department. I can't remember if it's police or sheriff. He carries a badge. He carries a gun. He's the guy, you know, he's the dude who's settling all this stuff and trying to figure things out. And he's, you know, his son's been arrested. He's got to go get his son. His eldest son has also been arrested with him. His son's mom is not happy about this. He's having to figure out what happened to these dogs. His dad's calling him. Like, all these things are happening. And it's very nuanced and very real. And although I can't speak from my experience because I've never lived on a reservation, but being that I came from a group of people who lived in a very poor area of the United States, I can say that this is something very real to them still, just to kind of make a parallel, you know, living in a place where you still have to hunt and trap a majority of your food. You don't get to go buy it. A place that maybe not everybody has a telephone and you have to go to your neighbor's house to use it or to a store or a business to use their phone. Even though this movie is set over 40 years ago, this is still a very realistic film You know, in that you have these groups of people who are marginalized, they don't have a lot of money, and they're having to just kind of figure it out. And that creates a mounting list of problems on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. The thing I love about this movie and, you know, some of the media we have been getting lately, you know, things like Reservation Dogs, which if you haven't watched that, highly recommend, is portraying the regularity of day-to-day life in this particular community and not exoticizing, again, you know, I I feel like I'm going to say this over and over again, not exoticizing this way of life or the way that these people live, but just really portraying like, this is regular life for this group of people, you know, and some of it may look different than our day-to-day life, but the monotony of it, the regular human struggles parallel, you know, things that we all experience in our humanity with a different flavor, a different nuance, a different veneer or a different thing that is impacting the way that we eat or the way that our housing is or whatever, but that it's also like this is regular life. It's not something you know, so vastly different, right? you know, and I feel like I'm not explaining that well, but just the thing that struck me about that opening was the monotony of it. You yeah. know, here we see people going about their day-to-day lives in the community and most of them are working very hard and some of them are effing up and yeah. some of them are just trying to get through and they're trying to help each, you know, it's... um it's very regular in that way. No, I totally agree with you. And it's a thing that we don't get to see a lot of because the 
predominant amount of media that featured indigenous people prior to, you know, just the past 20 years, I would say, was romanticizing, you know, the quote unquote Indian, you know, Mm -hmm. in Westerns or even up until the 90s, we were still getting Westerns. And oh, yeah. And we were also still getting white people appropriating, you know, Native American stories and then, you know, playing, you know, whatever, which don't even get me started on that because that'd be a whole thing because historically we were doing that and taking you know taking those stories away from people indigenous people to tell themselves which we don't agree with yeah um official position of the podcast but yeah yeah red face is terrible do not do it yes so it was really exciting to see that we're getting this portrayal of 1981 in canada near i think it's in quebec province of Native American people doing their everyday life, living on a river that's polluted, fishing, hunting, trapping. I, I know Bumper, one of the characters in the movie, is like up in the woods. They just keep saying like, uh, he's up in the woods, go get him, you know, yeah, prob- probably yeah. deer hunting or whatever. And just doing the regular everyday thing and trailer, you know, just trying to slog through it and having to placate both all of the people who live in this community on the reservation And also have to play ball with what they call townies, who are the people who live in not on the reservation. Yeah. Predominantly white people who either look down on them or don't want to play ball with them for whatever reason, just to make their lives harder. And that is such an interesting thing that we don't get a lot of representation in in media, not until more recently. So very exciting to see that because I think... If you don't know what that, like, I can't understand what a lived experience is for any of the people until I see it presented to me. Yeah. So this was really, really cool to see what it was like for Jeff Barnaby, you know, just this like slog. You have people who are experiencing issues with drugs and alcohol, just like any person in the United States. Everybody knows of someone or is close to someone who has struggled with drugs or alcohol. And also in communities that are predominantly poor, you're going to have more of that. Because (laughs) what my dad always said is, if there's not shit else to do, then you're going to drink or you're going to do drugs. And that's very much the situation here. People just regularly are abusing drugs and alcohol. And so Trailer is having to deal with that. And Trailer is also trying not to come down too hard on his son and do right by his kids, even though one of them is like probably a lost cause at this point, you know. specifically Lysol is who I'm talking about there. But it's very interesting because although different, it is not so far away from us that we can't easily relate to the struggles of this. Yeah. And I also think that it's easier to get into a film when you're able to say, oh, I know somebody who's like that, or I've been in this situation. You know, it's, it's so much easier to relate to a film. And these characters are flawed and robust and deep. And they, you know, there's nobody that's good all the way through. Right. And that's such an awesome way for us to be able to sit here and watch this movie because zombie movies end up being puerile sometimes, you know, where the characters are like very two dimensional. Yeah. The the bad guys get eaten by zombies. A couple maybe good guys are going to get eaten by zombies to get you in the feels. And then the good guys are going to make it out alive. Yeah. But that's not how this movie goes. And I like that. I like that too. And not to jump all the way to the end but one of the things that i really really liked about this movie is that sometimes somebody is just not 
the best person and they don't have to have a redemption arc. I'm talking about yeah. Lysol in particular. Like, it, it becomes puerile when in a horror movie, especially a zombie movie, but in any horror movie, like, yeah, a good redemption arc can be good sometimes where you have the troubled character, the F up character, whatever, and the thing happens, the horror happens, and it forces them to step up and be a leader or a hero or make a noble sacrifice or whatever it is. But I think the reality of the human condition is not everybody is capable of doing that or willing to do that or has the capacity in their current reality, even with the addition of the horrors or something to kind of shake them out of that reality to get out of their own way. And sometimes people, even faced with the world literally falling down around them, will, out of protection, default to that less than desirable behavior or that, you know, that effed up behavior or that behavior that excludes, you know, the needs and concerns of community. And we see that in Lysol. And I actually appreciated that, Mm -hmm. that he, you know, spoiler alert, he does not get a redemption arc. Yeah. Like he just, and it's not to say that he's entirely a bad person. I think we see very clearly as the movie progresses that he has his perspective and he has his reasons for behaving the way that he does. And a lot of that is out of trauma. And the apocalypse is not going to change that. This is a person who has endured a lot of trauma and responds to the world with his trauma informing his every action. And guess what? Like a zombie apocalypse is just another thing that happened to him yeah you know and it's not going to radically change the way that he approaches the world or responds to it or behaves and actually that is such an awesome way to segue into what i wanted to talk about which is kind of the way that this movie deals with exchanging power yeah because lysol is absolutely the type of person who cannot handle an exchange of power Because Lysol has built his worldview around being traumatized and being the one without power in a situation. Yeah. So to kind of elaborate on that, the idea is that this Red Crow reservation exists on Quebec province land, but that they're not getting the same resources. And and this is all done through very skillful writing and just little pieces of dialogue back and forth between sometimes Lysol, but mostly it's centered around trailer because there's a situation where someone he knows that lives on this reservation needs an ambulance and the townies, quote unquote, don't come to the request for the ambulance and trailer says, well, they never do. And so there's that. And so we understand through these just little snippets of dialogue, they don't belabor the point or anything like that, but just these little snippets of dialogue that this reservation is not being served by the community around it. Yes. That they're kind of, I don't want to say put out to pasture, but they are left to themselves. Yeah, they have to do everything themselves. They're expected to, even though they don't have some of the resources that this town nearby is going to have for them and should be sharing with them. Yeah. So that's kind of the overarching theme that we're seeing in this movie. And then we see 
Lysol, who kind of like goes into the towny side and creates havoc and, and makes a mess. And then he and his brother, Joseph, both get arrested on the towny side, which unfortunately, because of that trailer has to go and play nice with the the sheriff or the sheriff's deputy over there in order to get him out, which that's just something that he has to do. And when he gets there, the sheriff's deputy is not in a hurry. He doesn't care. The, even though he has nothing else going on, he's got his boots kicked up and he's watching TV. That's how they treat, you know, the people who live on this Red Crow reservation. So Lysol has this very interesting, very shield-like point of view where he's like, well, everybody else wants to shit on me. So I'm just going to go and create havoc wherever I am. I don't care about, I don't care about getting a job. I don't care about supporting myself. All I care about is creating havoc, drinking beer, doing drugs, whatever. And we see that very early on, but he pulls his brother, Joseph, who's younger than he is into the same kind of situation. And so Trailer and his wife are worried about it. They're worried. Joss is his wife's name. Or, sorry, Joseph's mom's name. I don't think they're married. We get the idea that they're not together right now. Yeah. But he's pulling Joseph into this, you know, his same lifestyle. And they're worried because Joseph's girlfriend is pregnant and, you know, he's got a kid on the way and somebody else to look out for. So they're worried that he's not going to step up to the plate like his brother has not stepped up to the plate. And Lysol has this shield-like worldview of just creating chaos wherever he goes. So when this power dynamic shifts, he doesn't handle it well. Right. Because he has always been shit on his entire life. He's been treated like crap. He looks indigenous, you know. So when he goes to interact in the town, they're going to look down on him. That's just how the dynamic has been for the most part between the two places. So when this power dynamic happens or the shift happens, Lysol is number one worst person to be experiencing this because he is going to lash out. He's not going to look at this group of people who now need him and seek refuge with him. He's not going to look upon them, you know, favorably. He's not going to say like, oh, let me share all my resources with you as you have. Oh, wait, you've never done that with me. Right. So while a lot of the people there are like, yes, we need to extend this olive branch, we need to help these people, this very interesting power shift happens. And then you have folks who are like, no, why should we? They never did it to us. And other people who are like, we're all just trying to get through this zombie apocalypse together. We need to treat each other as humans, you know, and not segregate based off of how we're going to treat people based off of their skin color. Yeah. So very interesting because Lysol is number one worst person to ever have, you know, (laughs) that kind of laid at his feet. Yeah. And it's cool because, you know, zombie films in particular are such ripe ground for exploring issues of inclusion and exclusion. I mean, at their core, the sort of dynamic that Romero sets up is, you know, in this situation, everyone is trying to protect their own. Mm -hmm. And there's an instant suspicion, there's battle for resources, all of these things. And you can put that under many different types of lenses. And in this case, for Jeff Barnaby to say, I'm going to make this about identity, you know, make this this kind of struggle that we see set up in the zombie film, and base it on identity and things that I have experienced is just, 
I love it because I can kind of chart. I, I did this many years ago for a project that we were working on uh, at work about zombies, funny enough. <laughs> Whoever thought that my horror world and my work world would intersect, but it did. <laughs> and I was having to teach a lot of people about like the sort of zombie genre. So I made this kind of timeline of like the really, really important movies and like why they were important. And all of the really important ones were, you know, yes, like the first this or the first that or, you know, the first this in terms of effects. But a lot of them were, here's how they took that insider, outsider, social commentary thing and advanced it or broke new ground or investigated it in a new way. And I would put this right on that chart because it does something new and different and yet the same. Yeah. I love that. I th I thought that that was one of the strongest aspects of this movie is really exploring when you get down to it between you and your neighbors or you and a group of people that you have deemed other. Yeah. How will you treat one another if at the end of the world, everything has changed mm -hmm. and one group of people have all the resources because they're protected and you have to go to ask them for help? How will they treat you and how will you treat them? Yeah. And how will things differ? So this is such an interesting movie because for the most part, the indigenous people initially did not want to accept the townies into their new reservation. I'm just going to call it the new reservation because yeah. it's, I mean, it's protected by walls post-apocalypse, but they don't want to accept the townies in because they put them all at risk. Yeah. Because even though they're not, they're immune to this virus, it's still possible that they could die. It's like a modern way to look at what actually happened in history. You know, you have people existing on land that they have always existed on. And suddenly, here are people from elsewhere coming in, needing, actually needing their help to navigate this space, but also wanting to take for their own definitely posing a danger in this case, you know, and, and historically to a danger of disease. Yeah. If we look at smallpox, which uh, Jeff Barnaby has referenced in his inspiration for this movie. Yeah. So we see this sort of modern take on colonization. Right. In, in this film. Yeah. I did want to say that I thought that the direction of the film, the cinematography of the film and the gore all were amazing. Yes. For, for me, I really thought that there were some shots where I was like, man, this is just as good as and, and what it called back to me for me was um, it follows uh -huh. some yeah. of those like very dark scenes with like minimal lighting, but just like highlighting those important areas. Yeah, it's very rich. There's some really cool like still shots that we kind of intersect in the in the movie. Some really cool animated scenes, too. I loved the inclusion of the animation. Yeah, very unexpected. But I, I liked yeah. that it was there. Yeah, totally. To kind of show us metaphorically what we think is happening and also to show us in reality the changing of people yeah. as we go along through the movie. And I know we talked about it being close to George Romero, but directorial style-wise, I thought Jeff Barnaby hit this perfect middle ground between John Carpenter, you know, sort of a more artistic look at uh -huh. um, some of these scenes, and, and also the, the sound. I thought the sound was really, really good. Yeah. Because we get a lot of zombie movies now made by... Zack Snyder, which 
I love a good Zack Snyder hor- yeah. horror, you know, zombie movie. Don't get me wrong. But we get these scenes and sequences where we have to make fun of the zombies, you know, and it ends up being a little bit more humorous. This movie, though, stays serious pretty much throughout. Yeah. With the exception of a couple of instances where the indigenous people will have this like really deadpan humor, which is funny, but not to the point where it's going to derail you from what's happening in the movie and the seriousness of the situation. Zack Snyder definitely took the thing from the original Dawn of the Dead that a lot of people, myself included, kind of don't like about the movie, which is like, we're going to give you this serious movie, but as an antidote, all of a sudden, like, and I'm talking about the original here, hey, there are bikers and there are pies in the face. And, and, you know, some people need that antidote. This is why I like Day of the Dead so much better than Dawn of the Dead. Like, I like a serious, dark, just like, you know, just give it to me. And this movie does that, you know, where it's, it doesn't relent very much. There are moments of pause and quiet where you can catch your breath, but emotionally it does not let up. And I think that actually works in its favor. Yeah. The cinematography, I was fully with it. The George Romero slash, you know, Zack Snyder levels of gore were great. Yeah. The gore in this movie is very, very good. Mm-hmm. And I know that they use a little bit of CGI, but for the most part, it's very good. It's very practical, very realistic. There are parts that's funny. I mean, Bumper puts a chainsaw through this EMT's head on yeah. top of trailer and he just gets drowned in blood, you know, which is awesome. It was great. It was such yeah. a fun. That was such a fun scene to watch. But they don't like have, you know, sequences where it's like, Okay, four people back to back, you know, they're they're all going through this whole mess of zombies and they're slaughtering them. It's not like uh, Edgar Wright level of like zombie goofiness. Yeah. It's, it's not like Zack Snyder level of like, okay, let's put on an ACDC song and just yeah. like cut off a bunch of people's heads. There are instances where that head cutting off situation happens, but they keep it either very quiet, yeah. which I appreciate, Or there's like a part where Bumper is, he puts on a a tape and he's playing like an old country song while he's luring all these zombies out with with the patrol car. And I just thought that was great. I, yeah. I, I really loved it. Like every part of the production of this movie I thought was very, very good. Yeah. And that scene keeps it in the world of the film. It doesn't take you out. You know, it's not ACDC or like I always think of... Uh, all of the movies that choose Sabotage by the Beastie Boys, which I love. I love that song. No judgment. But yeah. like, you know, it's like, okay, now it's time for the, you know, the weird like rock informed song montage with some like slowed down action and whatever. Right. Like this movie doesn't do that. And I, I like it for that. I don't know what it's called when you do this, but you know how sometimes they'll like start playing a song and it'll sound like it's on the radio and then they end up making it like over. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know what that's called, but they don't even do that. No, they don't. Like the cassette tape that he puts in, it sounds like it's in the car the entire time. So as he drives away with all these zombies attached, the music goes away too. Right. Which is really cool. Yeah. So I don't know. All in all, I thought that everything about this movie, there's no breaks in the writing. There's no breaks in the dialogue. The dialogue is good the whole whole way through. It's realistic. The shots are great. And I'm saying all this because I'm eventually going to get to all the criticism that this movie got. And that's why I'm like... I'm bolstering myself. (laughs) (laughs) Juliet said while we were watching this, I'm sure she said it on the podcast before, the best zombie movies have great gore 
and like insane levels of gore and blood, but also something really good to say. Yeah. And this movie checks both of those boxes like in spades. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have both. I don't think movie can succeed as a zombie movie without both. You know, like, yeah, they exist. There are some zombie movies that try way too hard to have something to say and they tell they don't show and they so they come off as too preachy which was one of the criticisms of this movie that i completely disagree with um or they are a gore fest but they have nothing to say and the characters are very surface level and they really aren't saying something new or delving into identity it's just people versus zombies and that and that is an experience but it's not the zombie movie i want to see mm-hmm. and again to me that fails as a zombie movie like they can both exist and and if you like those movies like that's fine they can be fun or whatever but when i'm really gonna like sit down and watch a zombie movie because i want to see a zombie movie i want something like this mm-hmm. that's gonna give me both in a very thoughtful way yeah i know that i've already harped on this before But there are so many homages that you can see in this movie to all of the other zombie and horror greats. The ones I'm thinking of just off the top of my head are Land of the Dead. Yep. First part of this movie is the actual day of the apocalypse when everybody starts turning, which is because of tainted food, as far as we can tell, which is probably from industrial runoff. That's kind of the, the impression that we get here. Tainted food over time and then the folks who aren't indigenous eat this food and then they become they become infected. So it goes from that to like this six months later situation. And the six months later situation gives us tons of George Romero throwbacks. Yep. It gives us Land of the Dead. It gives us 28 Days Later because they call yes. them Zeds. They never call them zombies. They either call them Zeds or Gs, yep. which I think is fantastic. And it does all that without copying. Right. Yeah. It does these beautiful little, like, just these little touches of like, okay, this looks like this. Or you've got this military, you know, army zombie with no arms or legs hanging up on the front of your reservation. And that gives you this Land of the Dead Romero vibe. And they're they're having to go out and figure out how to clear out all these zombies and stop them from coming over the bridge and all that, which is Land of the Dead, and then calling them Zeds like they do in, in 28 Days Later. And I think Army of the Dead does that too. I think so. But in any case, like using all of these influences and not copying them, but really taking them, making them, making it your own, but also just these little nods like, hey, I was inspired by this director. And Uh so I want to have this little thing in there. Yeah. I loved that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A rare positive horror review from Roger Ebert. He actually said in his review of this that the whole time he was watching it, he kept thinking the same thing over and over again, which was George Romero would have dug this. And I love that because I tend to agree. Mm -hmm. No, I definitely think that George Romero would have dug it a lot. Not only is it a movie that's made after his example. Right. Of a movie that has something to say that's got great gore, but is also inherently political in nature. But also, I think George Romero was always on the side of people who historically have not had their stories told Yeah, to make them the center and the focal point. So I don't know. I just, I love it all the way through. I really, really enjoyed this movie. And so 
in saying that, we're going to get to all of the criticism that this movie got. <laughs> I so, don't understand. <laughs> so this movie does not have super high reviews. I mean, it's got 5.8 out of 10 as of this recording on IMDb. I have to imagine that the reason why that happened is it got review bombed. And I think the reason why that happened is because this movie centers around white people being the problem. (laughs) So it's partly that, but it's also partly like this exchange of power, you know, putting a finer point on treatment of indigenous people specifically, but treatment of minorities or marginalized people in general and how the larger population of white people don't tend to reach out and share resources in an equitable way, in a productive way, and then changing that and then saying, okay, now indigenous folks are going to be the ones that have those resources and are, or are they not going to share them with white people? And also white people or non-indigenous people being the ones that could come in and be infected and murder everyone. Yeah. I have to imagine that that is part of the problem why people were like, oh, this, and the other thing that people said, oh, it's too preachy. <laughs> Except it wasn't. Uh, I it, really, I really never got that. so subtly told. Yeah. Y- you know, I feel like, and I don't want to give people more credit than they deserve, because I think there are still people who would feel this way watching this movie now, like, it was anti-white, wah, wah, wah. Well, mm-hmm. it's not, but whatever. But when I think about the time that this movie came out, it was pre-George Floyd, and mm-hmm. it was also pre this sort of moment where um, the remains of children that were killed in residential boarding schools in Canada, that all came to light either in late 2020 or early 21. And so... I would hope that maybe some of those people that felt that way about this movie would have learned from these events, you know, and would have, you know, done some work and some study and would maybe come back to this movie with a different perspective. This movie definitely dropped at a moment where (laughs) it's kind of a microcosm of the film, right? Like, We were all feeling very self-protective and very perhaps less than generous to other people because we were in it and we were at home and trying to survive. And I'm not I'm not giving people a pass because it's kind of no excuse, but I can also see where circumstantially why perhaps people would have thought that. I'm sure there are plenty of people that would watch this movie again and be like, no, it's anti-white, but perhaps given what has happened in the United States and Canada since this movie's release would cause people to reconsider their position on this film now. I hope. Yeah. Perhaps that's very Pollyanna of me. I don't know. (laughs) It's funny that you bring up the residential boarding schools because actually Jeff Barnaby's first major full-length movie was actually, uh, it's called Rhymes for Young Ghouls. And it was actually based in um, 1976, which is the year he was born. And it was specifically about residential boarding schools in Canada. Because I think that for the indigenous population in Canada, the awareness of what was happening in these boarding schools was was all too real. They they are yes. they already knew and they had known and they were trying to cry it from the rooftops and say, hey, you know, this is happening and 
we're dying. Our, our kids are dying. They've come to hate us because of what's being taught in these schools. And not to get off on too far of a tangent, but yeah, that's, I, I absolutely think that maybe giving it another shot now yeah. might be a little bit more kind to both the nuances of how Indigenous people were treated in Canada in general and also like the shift in power because not only are we seeing it with Indigenous people and, and white people, but also the way that we've treated minorities in the United States. Yes. All minorities. I mean, during the pandemic, it was Asian Americans and Black people in America too. Just kind of the more, I mean, I guess we could call it woke, but whatever. The awareness that we have now after spending a lot of time at home and also taking in a lot of awful media and what happened, you know, George Floyd, what happened to America after that saying, hey, <laughs> minorities have already always known that white people have treated them poorly. And now we're finally like, oh, shit, we should have been listening. Yeah. And I think perhaps to especially now um, those who are open to learning are much more aware of the systemic way yes. in which we all implicitly or explicitly, most of us both, uh, contribute to systems of oppression right. literally every day. Yeah, And I think that when this movie came out, those who were already immersed in this world, and, and I'm talking about non-BIPOC folks for a second here, mm -hmm. um, white folks who were already immersed in this study and world were aware of it, but white folks writ large had not been introduced to this concept of systemic racism, classism, oppression, et cetera. A lot more people are aware of that now, but I think confronting that at first, it it is such a confrontation, mm -hmm. you know, to be like, I'm just a white person living my life. I've never done anything wrong, but, but you know, I, I don't hate people, whatever. But to truly understand, like, I am a contributor to a, you know, to many systems that oppress other people arbitrarily based on their identity that have been in place for hundreds and hundreds of years. That is very shocking. And it's very, it's an affront to a lot of people. So to have this movie nudge at that mm -hmm. and, and poke at it a little bit uh, for folks who weren't ready for that, I can see how they would have a, neg a negative experience. My hope is that for those folks that had a negative experience, and again, I'm going to be all Pollyanna for a second, that maybe this movie has stuck with them and continues to poke in a way that will eventually, along with other things, start to poke at that and, and help contribute to an understanding. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about this at such a high level. This movie does not even really get at no, it at, at, it at the point that we're even discussing. It doesn't. This movie is very subtle and very, I, I would say, generous it in, is. in its I treatment so. of this of this power exchange that we're talking about, because so many of the characters are informed by both the personal and also the systemic way that they're treated by the other folks in this area. And we're also talking about a small town. Yeah. You know, we're talking about a microcosm, which makes it much easier for us as viewers to understand exactly what that dynamic is. Yeah. We're not talking about all of Canada or all of the United States. We're talking about these these two very small towns and how they're interacting during this time of struggle. So although we've really got at the point here, this movie and the fact that people are saying it's preachy 
is hilarious to me because it really doesn't even get at it to the point that we were even discussing. No, <laughs> no. It's we very... added a lot more exposition. Yeah, exactly. It, and we talked about several themes that they don't even touch on in this film. Yeah. It would be one thing if they had like a white cop saunter in and be like, I'm going to mess everything up, you know? Yeah. Because they call the, the white people in this movie hillbillies, which is, I mean, they probably are. They're living in, in a marginalized community out in the middle of nowhere, it looks like. Not anywhere near a town, a big city. So they call them hillbillies. Whatever. I've been called worse. I mean, yeah. I'm hillbilly stock. Both my families are hillbillies. So whatever. It doesn't bother me at all. But the hilarity to me of saying that this movie is preachy when there is a whole ass plot point about Lysol thinking we got to kill all these white people because they're a threat to us. And then it eventually being the demise of literally everybody, including both the indigenous people and the hillbillies. That's a whole ass plot point. How yeah. could you say that this movie is preachy when it is mutually assured destruction on the point of that? specific topic yeah what the hell <laughs> well and it's also very reductive because and i'm going to quote him here um in his interview with the guardian jeff barnaby says quote at no point as an indigenous creator do i want my audience to think that what they're looking at is an accurate representation of native life it has native language and native actors but this is the creative interpretation of a popular cinematic trope in this case zombies I'm indigenizing zombies, but I'm not trying to make any particular statement about the accuracy. It'd be like showing Mark Wahlberg on screen and saying he speaks for the Irish. I don't think I should be carrying that weight. I don't speak for native cinema. I speak for Jeff Barnaby. Yeah, like, th that's great. Yeah. And I love that he said that, too, because even if you thought this movie was too preachy, let's say so, that should never make it so that you're will shy away from another indigenous horror movie exactly because yeah. we need to see this i didn't have any idea what it would be like to live on a, in a coastal area as an indigenous person but i'm right. very interested in that and i want to see that from that point of view but i also love that this movie there are so many things that inform the experiences that occur in this movie that juliet looked up about the 1981 yeah. you know raids within the actual reservation that Jeff Barnaby lived in that I didn't know about. And even if I hadn't known about it, although it does make this world much richer and the importance of the, the message so much in orders of magnitude greater. But even if I didn't know that and I, I wasn't informed to that level, I would still say, wow, this movie's great. <laughs> yeah. The other thing about 1981 and this one was pointed out uh by joe lipset in a uh, bloody disgusting review is that 1981 was the year that prime minister pierre trudeau the father of justin trudeau um, and the canadian government amended the canadian constitution and in their original amends of the constitution they omitted uh, Clause 34, which recognizes the Indigenous Land Rights Treaty. And that resulted in these massive protests from Indigenous peoples all across Canada. And they rectified that issue. But it was this moment where uh, First Nations people in Canada were really standing up and saying like, hey, uh, please acknowledge us as part of this country and acknowledge our claim to this land as well. So that was some really, really helpful historical context um, to have that 
uh, knowing that that happened in the year that this movie was set really, really, I don't know, made it a richer watch for me. Yeah, I really appreciated the fact that you brought that up because I had no idea. That was something that, I mean... I'm not up on my Canadian history in general, yeah. um, but that was like really illuminating to me the way that this was. It seemed like it was directly informed by that. So mm-hmm. and I thought that was really cool. One of the other critiques of this movie is that it's too dark. And I know I've already gone on about how I love the cinematography in this movie. But if you think it's too dark, watch it on a better TV because I <laughs> literally was scouring this film to find yeah. a scene where I did not think that the light was adequate to show what was happening. And I think that it was dark on purpose. I mean, yeah, there are several scenes that happen in the nighttime. And also keep in mind that electricity is a scarce commodity because it's the friggin' end of the world. <laughs> so and they're not going to have generators and a bunch of gasoline for all the time. So there's a lot of firelight. There's lanterns that are being used. But there was never a single instant when I was like, this movie is too dark. And I've seen some movies that have been way too dark where I'm like, what is even happening? Oh, same, same. I have, you know, I am not immune to that criticism at all. Like there are movies, both in a home setting and some theatrical releases that I have been like, (laughs) like, I can't see what's happening. I think it's supposed to be scary. This movie is not one of them. Yeah, I could see everything. I really did not get the whole like this movie is too dark thing. That is a common critique of it. And I thought I really thought that every single scene was rich. It was if it was dark, it was on purpose. The lighting was very purposeful. There was just never a scene where I was like, wow, I can't see shit. Yeah, no. I really loved it. Same. I did want to say on a more somber note that unfortunately, um, Jeff Barnaby actually, uh, he died in October of 2022. So almost, it was October 13th, 2022. So almost a year ago now. And it's even going to be closer to a year when this episode airs, which will be on Indigenous Peoples Day. He battled with cancer for about a year. But I did want to say that um, one of the really amazing things that came out of his unfortunate and untimely death is that the Imaginative Film and Media Arts Festival, in cooperation with Netflix, actually launched the Jeff Barnaby Grant, which is a program that helps support new works by emerging Indigenous filmmakers. So even though we won't have any more Jeff Barnaby movies um, to watch, we at least, at the very least, will have this grant that will help assist other people who are emerging Indigenous filmmakers to tell their stories so that we can continue to watch and be exposed to these stories because I think we need that. Absolutely. So next time, we've been in the 2000s for a little while now, actually. Yeah. Uh, Now we're going to go back to 1964 for our next episode and do a Hammer film. I believe this is our first Hammer film. It is. uh, Which is exciting. And this is actually one that I have never seen. I've never seen this one either. First watch for both of us. Very exciting. Rare for for it to be a Hammer film that I haven't seen. Uh, We're going to do The Gorgon, which is from 1964, directed by Terrence Fisher. Of course, being a Hammer film, we have both Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in the action. And uh, I'm excited. You and I are both big fans of... uh, Medusa myths and Gorgon myths and uh, reception thereof. So we'll see how this one does. I can't wait to shoot the shit about Medusa with you. Yes. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. And hear bonus episodes at patreon.com slash attackofthefinalgirls. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.